Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a patient perspective on breast cancer with breast cancer survivor Barbara Beich and Dr. Chagpar, a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Barbara, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how everything started. Once upon a time, I was perfectly well, and then dot, dot, dot. Okay. Um, I am 80 years old, a retired uh, teacher, researcher. I'm a biologist. I have, um, jumping to cancer, I have a family history of all sorts of cancer, including my mother's breast cancer. So... um, Cancer has always been in the back of my mind, but I tried to keep it in the back. Understandable. And so how did how did things start for you? Well, I had been going for twice a year imaging. That involves um, once a year uh, a mammogram and a once a year, I think, uh, MRI, and they alternated every six months so that I was always seen because I had um, fibrocystic, i.e. lumpy breasts and many cysts, and so self-exam was rather challenging for me. So I had gone for my routine checkup, and I felt so confident that it was going to be a nothing that I even told Richard, my husband, that he didn't need to come with me. Um, and to my surprise, although I, as I recall, this was a year ago, a year and a half ago, the mammogram didn't show anything different from the previous time, but the ultrasound showed a very tiny lump that they were concerned about, a mass. And then what happened? Well, we scheduled further imaging and biopsies, and I don't remember the exact order of it, but they they had to use uh, ultrasound-guided needle biopsies because it was so small. And when they finally did find it, they took, I guess, on the order of a dozen little plugs of tissue in the area where they were pretty sure the mass in question was located, and... um, and then they went. They got sent off to pathology and showed that yes, indeed, I did have uh, breast cancer. And I forgot to mention, but two years earlier than that, in 2016, I also had a small lump in the same breast, but apparently of different origin. And it was called DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ. Um, so this was my second bout with my breast. I had also had ovarian cancer. This is going back in history now, 10 years earlier. Um, in any case, the the lump turned out to be positive, and I met with Dr. Chagpar, with whom I'm talking today, <laughs> and, we, and we planned um, surgery. And the options were at the time. Am I jumping ahead? No, you keep going. Okay. The options at the time were to do nothing, which was rather untenable, um, or to do another 
uh, to do a lumpectomy since I had already had a partial mastectomy two years earlier. Um, and there wasn't, in my mind, a whole lot of breast left. I opted for another option, which was a mastectomy. Um, and then more, there were so many choices. The next choice was to, um, to just have the breast tissue removed, the whole breast, um, and do nothing further, or to do some sort of a reconstruction. I opted for the reconstruction. And there I had another choice, which was either a, a gel um, implant or I think a saline, it was salty water-filled implant. Or the third choice was something I had only recently started reading up on, and it was called a deep flat surgery, D-I-E-P, which is an acronym for some sort of... Um, Epigastral blood Deep vessel. inferior epigastric perforator flap. Right. You can yeah. see why I don't keep that in my <laughs> conscious mind. Um, and in that procedure, they take tissue from your lower abdomen, um, fatty tissue or adipose tissue, and they transplant it to the breast right after the breast tissue has been removed, that is, after the mastectomy. I thought that sounded like the best option because I had already read that people who have the saline or the gel implants sometimes have problems with them. And this seemed to be a good idea, taking my own tissue with an artery and vein to nourish it. Um, and putting it in the breast sounded like a great idea. Um, so at that point, we set up a procedure with Dr. Avraham, also from Smilo. And the plan was that while Dr. Chagpar did the mastectomy, uh, Dr. Avraham and his colleague would be taking the fatty tissue from my abdomen. And then when she was finished, they would, uh, Avraham and his colleague, would get right in and implant the, they, they would match up the blood vessels with my own blood vessels underlying the breast tissue, hook it up, and then put the, the breast tissue in, um, take some of the skin from my abdomen and put it on my breast, which amuses me to this day because it had a freckle from when I used to sunbathe. And, and then they would sew up the lower abdomen. They had made an incision from hip to hip. Um, is this okay to go into this much detail? Sure. So, so they'd made an incision from hip to hip, sort of shaped like um, a football, I guess, uh, an ellipse. They then had to sew that up. So where should we go from here? Well, let's take a step back for a little bit. So, you know, one of the first things you said is that you had been having imaging every six months with a mammogram alternating with an MRI. Now, most women get annual mammograms. Why were you getting an MRI every six months as well? Uh, that's a really good question that I inadvertently flew over. Um, family history and my own personal history, there, there was breast cancer in several members of my family. Um, I had had ovarian, which is shown to be genetically linked to breast cancer, and I had had the DCIS. So And I had difficult to interpret breast tissue. So for all those reasons, my gynecologist recommended that I have more 
recent, more frequent imaging. Uh, did you ever have genetic testing? I did. I had every test for every single mutation that had been found in a research lab. And at first, there were just the what are called the BRCA genes. And I had the, tested for the three mutants they knew at the time. That was maybe 10 years ago. And then by the time I went back to do further testing, they had 23 different markers they were using. And I tested negative for all of those and proceeded to tell all family members everything so they would have that as part of the family history. And But I also, as a biologist, know that there are all different kinds of ways that you can get cancer. And the fact that uh, the tests that were the the markers that were known all showed up negative didn't mean that there was some other factor right. or other genetic mutants that hadn't been found yet. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so tell us a little bit about going back in time just to fill in the gaps. Tell us about your ovarian cancer and when that was first diagnosed and how that was treated and how you felt at the time and what happened since then. Well, I went in, I'm re- trying to reconstruct, it was about 2005, I think, and I was going for my regular breast check, and my gynecologist said, why don't you also uh, do a test for ovarian cancer? I said, all right. I didn't think anything of it. I went in, I was anxious about the breast results and didn't pay too much attention to the ovarian test that I was having. (laughs) A a young techie did the imaging. It's called a transvaginal ultrasound, in which they they put a a probe in your vagina, and they look through it to see if there are any unusual lumps. And he said, my God, ma'am, you have a tumor as large as a cantaloupe. That was how my ovarian cancer was diagnosed. And I immediately set up an appointment with Dr. Peter Schwartz, who is well known for his work over the years on ovarian cancer. He took one look at the results and he said, we have to get you in for surgery right away. Um, Go off all um, blood thinners, which I did. And they gave me, I guess, a little more than a week to do that. And then... um, I had my highly enlarged ovary removed, and they also took some other tissue from the abdomen. And I should mention also, hmm, I forget what I was going to mention also, but it will come to me very soon. In any case, um, the they sent the tissue off to pathology, and the results, they, they stage it one, two, three, four, where four is the worst and one is not not as far developed. And I had stage 2C, and it was rapidly growing, which I assume was determined by typing that they do. Um, and he said, you're very lucky to be here. If it's 2C and it was growing rapidly, that means it would have metastasized out of the abdominal cavity very, very soon. So we got you in time. Uh, Stages 3 and 4 are much more difficult to treat, and we don't have a very good success rate at all. 
So that was my ovarian cancer. So you had been feeling perfectly fine, Mm. but your gynecologist said, you know, maybe we should just check your ovaries, given your family history and so on and so forth. And you went, and that's how this was found early uh, and treated. Uh, Yes and no. Um, I think when my gynecologist did a vaginal exam my previous visit, she felt something that felt a little unusual, and she had mentioned to me, why don't you go have this transvaginal ultrasound? And I was waiting for some sort of referral form and put it to the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. So some months passed. Mm -hmm. Um, And what else did you just ask But nonetheless, you still, you know... We're not having oh, any oh, the major symptoms. symptoms. No, I was, but I didn't. I didn't associate them with ovarian cancer. Ah. I felt three different symptoms. Let's see if I can reconstruct them. They didn't seem related at all to me. One was frequency of need to urinate, and looking back on it, I had this large tumor that was pushing on my bladder, my mm-hmm. urinary bladder. Number two, I felt sort of a pulling in the back on either side of my, on one side of my vertebral column, and that's the ligament that attaches the ovary to the connective tissue in the back. And it was pulling because of this distortion of organs in my body and the pulling on the enlarged ovary. The third symptom was that whenever I ate, if I ate a lot of food, I really felt uncomfortable. And they're all so logical. Mm-hmm given this large mass in my abdomen, but I didn't put them together. I didn't even think to mention them to my internist as three separate things that might be related. But I became rather evangelical afterwards, telling people, they said, well, how did you know? And those are three ways people can know that they should be looked at. There's a test um, called CA-125, And that will give you, if it's very high, that will give you an indication that you might have ovarian cancer. Right. But certainly being aware of your body and symptoms, even if they don't seem to be uh, anything that you would normally pay attention to, can be the first signs of some of the more silent cancers like ovarian cancer. But we're going to take a short break for a medical minute and learn more about your story with breast cancer right after we come back. Stay tuned. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Barbara Beich. We're discussing diagnosis and treatment for breast cancer, and she was telling us just before the break about how she had some really vague symptoms that normally she wouldn't pay much attention to, frequency of urination, feeling really full after a big meal, a little bit of pulling, all of which, in retrospect, 
may have been related to an ovarian cancer that was found, thankfully, fairly early with the use of a transvaginal ultrasound after her gynecologist had felt something a little bit funny on an exam. Points out that it really does pay to talk to your doctor about your symptoms, make sure that you go for those annual physical exams, and follow through with tests uh, that could help you to find cancer early. So, Barbara, after you went through the ovarian cancer, you had your surgery, they removed the ovary. Did you require further treatment? No. Um, I had, yes, yes, yes. This is so long ago, I really have to scratch my head. I had chemotherapy. I had six rounds of Taxol, um, three weeks apart. And the symptoms were minimized by the very kind and savvy nurses in the clinic at, at Smilo, um, who helped me to, they, they um, gave me, I think, some sort of cortisone or corticosteroids before, and they made other suggestions for how I could minimize the symptoms afterwards and to tell them right away if I had nausea, vomiting, and so on. Uh, and I pretty much sailed through it other than losing all my hair, um, which I dealt with pretty well. Uh, I remember going for a, a cancer walk somewhere in the in the middle of my chemo and having to wear a hat, which annoyed me. I hated having to wear hats. Um, but other than that, I went about my life. And how did the diagnosis of getting ovarian cancer impact you? Like, was that a shocker? Um, did it turn your life upside down, or did you take it all in stride? Tell us more about the emotional impact of that diagnosis. Well, I that was back in my uh, tough-it-all-out years. I had had some deaths in the family. I had some other very challenging events that I had to deal with. I had had a rough childhood. All those things helped me to develop a really effective coat of arms and uh, of armor. And so I didn't let my emotions get in at the time. I toughed it out. I, I continued to, let's see, I had retired, but I was very actively involved in many volunteer activities. I continued everything. I didn't stop. I was determined that it wouldn't affect my sexuality. Um, and it didn't. And I've I've taught human sexuality, and and I'm and I'm adamant about people allowing themselves to be sexual throughout their lives. So that wasn't very much of a setback for me. I couldn't wear bikinis for a while because I had this big scar up my middle, but <laughs> that seems rather minor and inconsequential. I think that women who do have reproductive surgeries of any sort do have to examine their sexuality. Sometimes it helps to have a therapist to help you get through it. It helps to have a supportive spouse, which I've always been lucky to have. And so you toughed out the ovarian cancer and got back to life as it otherwise was Yeah, and carried on. And yes. then some years later, you were diagnosed with yet another cancer. Yes. Tell us about that. 
when I heard it was, this is the DCIS we're talking about, which means that it, it was um, cancerous tissue but confined within the duct, a milk duct of, of the breast. Uh, and they said, well, you know, we can remove it with a lumpectomy. And I, I always pictured the lumpectomy would take the lump, which I knew it was very small, plus a margin around it to be safe. And I figured, well, it's very small itself, and the lump is not going to be very big. And uh, then when I woke up from the surgery, I found that it was much bigger than I anticipated. And for that reason, I would be really happy if <laughs> physicians would, would be really upfront and tell patients what could happen or what could be. I, I didn't have enough information. I, I got used to it. I wasn't thrilled about it. Um, my husband was wonderfully supportive and loving and helped me to keep from getting a little going crazy. Um, and it was okay. And the reason I think that it's hard for me to remember the details of the DCIS is that that was small league compared with my recent bout with uh, with carcinoma. Right. And so after the DCIS, which, as you say, is for all intents and purposes, quote, fairly small league, in the sense that it's a precancer, it it doesn't spread. Yes. Um, it's in terms of the stage numbers that you were talking about, it's stage zero mm -hmm. uh, for breast cancer. But still, uh, Oftentimes, we recommend that people have radiation after a lumpectomy or that they take a pill uh, if it's fed by estrogen. Were you offered any of those things? Did you choose to take them? Did you think about that? Did you think that that was overkill? Tell us about that whole thought process. I remember being offered them. I remember talking with a radiologist. I remember the, the the point that I remember most clearly is if we do radiation on that breast, if you ever have cancer again in that breast, we won't be able to use that tool. It's kind of a one-shot deal. Correct. And knowing that I spend my life waiting for the other shoe to drop in terms of cancer, breast cancer in particular, I chose not to have the radiation. And to be honest, I don't remember why I chose not to have the chemo, but I don't think I did. I don't remember. Oh, the, I know why I didn't take the pill. It was, uh, what was it at the time that they were giving? Um, tamoxifen? Yeah, tamoxifen. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I, I went to my scientist Bible, and I went reading up on side effects of tamoxifen, and because... I didn't see myself as a really good candidate, and I don't for remember now exactly why. It may have to do with my cardiovascular family history. Um, I didn't like the side effects, so I decided to say no thank you right. to those two choices. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, but some people will choose that, um, especially the idea that radiation is a one-shot deal, except for the fact that it reduces the risk of the cancer coming back and the pill similarly. And while, yes, it does have side effects, particularly in terms of cardiovascular risk, et cetera, um, it, it's, 
you know, sometimes those risks can be mitigated by other things. So if a pill, for example, increases your risk of clotting, you can take things that uh, help your blood to be thin. If a pill causes your bones to thin, you can take bone building medications. But I understand completely how, you know, you're thinking this is a precancer. The surgery got it. They took a lot of tissue. They got clear margins. You know, the chances of this thing coming back is still probably pretty small. And then what happened? And then it came back. Well, it, I don't think it came back from what you said and and I think other people said in the field. This was a new cancer independent of the DCIS. Mm-hmm. It did come back. I did choose all the guns I could. I, I saw Dr. D. De Giovanna. Thank you. Um, and he was really very, very helpful. We, we communicated very well. He's an MD, PhD, and so we, we could kind of talk biology, and, and I liked that. Um, he waited for the results of the markers on the cells, and, and there, these are receptors that tell you how sensitive that tumor was to three different kinds of growth factors or cancer-stimulating factors. One of them, estrogen, one of them, Herceptin, and is the third one some sort of a progestin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, mine came out positive, and at first I thought that was horrible, you know, positive markers, and I assumed that that would be the case anywhere in either of my breasts. Um, but then he said, no, 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 the fact that they're positive means w- that we can use some of our other arsenal and we can treat them. Mm-hmm. So as a result, uh, part of my chemotherapy was a, a Herceptin drug that blocked that site. So that was good. And another part of my, my treatment is an aromatase inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And that's a drug that converts male hormone to female hormone in the adrenal gland. So even though I didn't have an ovary, I, I was still producing some ovary, estrogen, and they wanted to minimize the the estrogen in my body. I will be on this aromatase inhibitor. It's called letrozole for five years total. I have passed the one-year mark, and I can tell you of all the symptoms that I knew were possible, um, I'm keeping a check on everything. I have echocardiograms regularly. I, I see an, an oncology um, cardiovascular nurse who's who's been wonderful. Jessica Corviello has been helpful. And, um, and we monitor my cardiovascular system to make sure, and it's in great shape. Um, the one thing that the letras, that I didn't dodge the bullet on with letrozole is that it can act on epithelium, on, on moist um, tissue, such as the vaginal tissue. So my what I have now and have to deal with is vaginal dryness and pain, which are particularly pronounced during uh, intercourse. Um, at this point, I have four different gels, creams, and um, a suppository that I use to fight that off, and it's pretty successful, not 100%. But uh, there's a wonderful clinic at Smilo run by Mary Jane Menken, and her staff, the staff are wonderful. They, um, 
one member of the staff is a, a psychologist or a social worker specializing in breast cancer. And I was offered her services, which I took gladly and asked if my husband could participate, and she said yes. And so she, her first name was Amoha. She's now off doing her own research and her own practice, um, helped us enormously to get through the, the ups and downs, to get through the periods where I thought I was... Um, I was losing my cognitive ability, you know, the, the expression chemo brain. Mm -hmm. And the more, and, and my brain's pretty important to me. <laughs> so it was one thing I absolutely did not want to lose. Um, so the more stressed out I would get about it, or the, or the more it came up in conversation, the worse it was. And it's sort of a feedback, you know, you're anxious about trying to remember a word and, and therefore you can't remember it, or it seems that way. Um, I got so stressed about it that I went for testing, and I had a complete battery of cognitive thinking tests and ended up, quote, doing very well for a woman your age, unquote. <laughs> Barbara Beitch is a breast cancer survivor. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.